Welcome to Herrera on Hollywood. My name is Stephen Herrera. In the previous episode, we talked with Jeff Quitney about his work as the director of the films Iced, Beyond the Door 3, and Lightning in a Bottle. After directing films, Jeff wrote for several animated television series, including Animaniacs, Road Rovers, Cow and Chicken, and Hysteria, which he conceived. In 1995, he won a Daytime Emmy Award for his work on an episode of Animaniacs, which was produced by Steven Spielberg. Jeff, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. How did you make the transition from directing films to writing for animated TV series? Well, uh, it, it actually the writing before uh, it began long before the animated series. I was a screenwriter before I started directing um, and uh, had a literary agent in Hollywood, but I was just writing scripts to make a living um, for low budget horror films, action films and sort of thing. And the way it works in that end of the Hollywood business is a lot of your income comes from writing scripts that never get produced or scripts that get optioned uh, multiple times. And you can actually, believe it or not, make something of a living doing that, even if it never makes it to the screen. And that was happening to me in the 80s. Um, and the uh, Italian producer Ovidio Asanides, who I mentioned uh, I worked for when I directed Beyond the Door 3, actually hired me to write scripts for him before I began directing. And um, a couple of them, uh, well, one of them, Beyond the Door 3, I wrote the original screenplay for that. I conceived of the original story. It was uh, based on a, a, a novel called The Painted Bird which I had read and uh, Jersey Kosinski had written. And it's a frightening story that takes place in medieval Eastern Europe. And I, I thought that was a great idea, pitched it to a video, wrote the script and that was in 1986 and then didn't think about it. And it was a couple of years later, I ended up directing that film, which was then had been rewritten by another uh, screenwriter he had hired, which is the way it kind of works. You, yeah, I've written scripts with other screenwriters getting the credit, happens all the time. I'm okay as long as the check doesn't bounce, you know? Um, but having said that, after um, the, the last film project that fell through, I had to continue with my writing to make a living, it, you know, I could see that the directing was getting very precarious. And so, you know, I, I found a way, um, I think it was the original literary agent who introduced me to somebody at Deke Entertainment. And I began writing scripts. I wrote many scripts of Action Man and Mummies Alive, all those wonderful uh you know, Saturday morning kids TV shows. I wrote many episodes of Street Sharks and it was it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was fun. I'd write a script a week. They they the turnaround was very quick in getting paid. I was working for reputable companies including Warner Brothers, so it was 1985 
with to 97, I believe, was when I was writing for those shows. So it was a much faster pace than directing films. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it can take a couple of years to get a film made. And you're, um, it may take 18 days to shoot the film, but it can take a long time to get a, a, a buyer, get the, the production put together. Whereas with, with, you know, when I was working for Warner Brothers, uh, you would you come in with a script idea, you know, ideas are cheap. I come up with 50 ideas for Animaniacs and the producer, Tom Ruger would say, uh, do number 37, I like that one. Within a week it's done and I'd get a check. And, it's, and it was like, uh, you know, this is an interesting way to make a living, I can do this. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So when you were writing these animated series, were you working at studio offices with other writers or were, did you work from home? Well, that's a good question. Uh, most of us writers, although we would do sometimes story meetings in, in an office at the companies with other writers, sometimes you bandy ideas around, which I loved, it, you know, sitting around a table with a bunch of crazy guys, mostly guys. There was always two or three women in there, too, that were really talented and you're throwing ideas around. That's great. But most of my writing was done back at home with my laptop. Um, in those days, we didn't have emails so you could send scripts via the internet. So I would have to print them out and jump in my car and, and drive them down to the studio and drop it off. It was really wild. That was, you remember, this is 95. So, you know, technology, at those times we had like a Toshiba, you know, monochrome screen, but I wrote my scripts on that thing and it worked. And I remember you told me you had a very immersive environment at home. You had the laptop set up in your right. kitchen, right? Yeah, this is the only way to write. You put the laptop on the kitchen counter. So within reach is the coffee pot and the refrigerator with the junk food. And, and you know, all day long, I would stand at the counter with my laptop. I wouldn't sit down and I'd sort of circle around my laptop, kind of like a hungry lion around his prey. And then every once in a while, I come in and attack the laptop. And like here, I'm at my laptop. Now I just start typing like a maniac, then pace around a little more. And then I do that all day long. It was very fun. <laughs> all right. I want to talk about Animaniacs specifically. It was a very popular series because of its likable characters and clever stories. Can you tell us about your work on Animaniacs and the Daytime Emmy Award that you won? Yeah, well, um, uh, by then I'd been writing scripts for a while and had, you know, all those other shows, um, Extreme Dinosaurs. I even wrote an episode of RoboCop. I'm telling you, I was all over the place, all over the map. But uh, Tom Ruger, who is the executive producer and creator had been, this show had been going on, I think for two years. I came in in the third year of the show and he just tried me out. He he sent me home with, um, I think it was in those days, VHS and, and you think about the mid nineties. So 
it had all these Looney Tune cartoons on mostly Bugs Bunny. He says, I want you to go home and watch two hours of Looney Tune cartoons. Get your head into this. Watch all the Animates, Animaniacs episodes and then come up with 50 log lines. So 50, a log line is a one sentence summary of the story idea. And I'm not sure what the first one was that I wrote because I wrote many episodes that never got made. That's just the, the nature of the beast. But um, he liked the ones, that he, one of them I had done uh, was, uh, well, there were, were specifically three that did really well and a number that never got made. But the um, the the one that, I, well, there was one an evening episode that was three, um, what was the, what was that called? So let me jump in here, Jeff. I want yeah, to start sure. with three tenors and you're out. That's, that's the one I was trying to think of. All right. So this is from season three. It's episode two. And I want to quickly give a summary of what that segment is about. So Slappy, Slappy Squirrel takes Skippy to see a baseball game. And she's surprised to find that she is attending a three tenors concert at Dodger Stadium instead of a baseball game. Yeah, what you just read was the log line that I pitched. Exactly, I think word for word right there. And uh, Ruger liked it a lot. Um, it, it was not only successful, but it was one of the, if not the only Animaniac show that was an hour-long episode that was played in the evening during prime time. Most of those Animaniacs were daytime shows. So, you know, that was the thing. That was the big thrill of it. So I want to tell you that I have fond memories of watching Animaniacs after school and my mom watched it with me because it had all of these references to pop culture from decades ago. Yeah, pop culture and even uh, art history. You know, we had an episode on uh, Picasso, Michelangelo. There were, I wrote an episode on Galileo that never got made that I thought was, was would have been really good. But I, I don't know what happened to that one. That was, was uh, one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> so the second episode I want to talk about was season three, episode five. And the segment that you wrote was entitled Method to Her Madness. And Slappy attends a method acting class with Skippy after being disgusted by their whiny ways and incoherent mumbling. She gives the actors some lessons of her own. Right. The, the, the idea was that you know, the actor's studio in New York City, the one that Marlon Brando went to and and you, you name them, all the great method actors went there, even Marilyn Monroe. So I, I researched it, saw all these actors that went there, what, what it was like uh, studying the Stanislavski method of acting and pitched the idea that instead of the... Animaniacs characters or whichever ones we were going to go with learning method it would be the other way around that Brando and all the others would learn cartoon acting so I thought that was an interesting idea much better than you know the cartoon characters learning method L let's have the these superstar you know uh actors 
learning cartoon, which is silly, you know, hit you over the head with an anvil kind of thing. <laughs> it's, it's role reversal. Right. There you go. And it was a huge hit. I, I, I remember getting a lot of good feedback on that one. And then the third one I want to talk about is from season four. It's episode one, and it was called One Flew Over the Cuckoo Clock. Right. So after flipping through too many channels with 90s talk shows, Slappy has a meltdown and Skippy is left to pick up the pieces. Right. It was uh, it was obviously a little bit of a parody of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that Jack Nicholson had been in. And here we go, once again, reversing roles here, you know, putting cartoon characters uh, in a mental house, a hospital. And I remember that uh, Tom, the, the producer, wanted to be very empathetic about mental illness. <clears throat> so how to write a silly slapstick cartoon around that subject was the challenge. And I think it worked. I want to move on and talk about another series that you wrote a lot of episodes for, and that was Street Sharks. What do you remember about working on that series? Um, loved it. Yeah, loved the show. Uh, ABC loved it. It was making them a fortune. Um, and uh, Disney produced it. Uh, and it was going great, except for parents called in and complained about the violent nature of the cartoon and I, I couldn't really think about what's what are they talking about and then it, somebody explained to me these sharks that are in there have really sharp teeth and you have little toddlers watching the show and it would scare the heebie-jeebies out of them they had to cancel the series one of their most successful kid shows because of complaints so I'll, I'll go down an ignominy for that that's okay. <laughs> All right. I want to move on and talk about your cow and chicken segment, Chicken in the Bathroom. And I'll quickly summarize it for our listeners. Chicken hates taking a bath, so he decides to waste his time. Cow, mom, and dad are all desperate to go to the toilet and attempt to persuade Chicken to take his bath. What what inspired you to write that story? <laughs> uh, I, I would say my own madness. I, actually, it was because I was a father who had a son who was maybe five years old or so at that time. And I actually had that experience. I couldn't get him to take a, to take a bath. And he, and he said, Dad, why do I need to take a bath? I'm just going to get dirty tomorrow anyway. So... I thought about that. This is very reasonable, you know, argument that he's making, very persuasive, but I ended up winning and he had to take a bath. Went to the producer of Cow and Chicken, who I was friends with, and I was trying to think of a way to kind of uh, to break into, I love that show. It is an absolutely wacky, completely bizarre show. Uh, I met with, I had this great conversation with the producer whose name right now escapes me, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, but you can look it up and he wrote most of the episodes, almost all of them. So he told me that I, most of the inspiration for that show comes from his own kids. And I said, well, I have one for you. And I pitched the idea 
of chicken in the bathroom. And he said, oh, that is so good. That is exactly how it goes. Let's do that. And so I got a credit for that. You know, I still get royalty checks from that show. Really? I mean, that was like 95, 96, 90. I don't know when that was, but it was... It, it, it was a strange thing. It's still being shown all over the world. <laughs> it was actually season three, episode six from September 19th, 1998. Really? Well, I was writing that long. Ah, interesting. Well, that really it surprised me. It might have been I wrote it in 97 and it didn't get made till 98. I'm not sure. But that shows you a, a kind of overlapping thing that was going on then. Um, so yeah, I, you know, my writing, you know, the, the funny thing also about the screenwriting is I wrote a script and that you talk about time in 1984, I wrote a thriller feature length screenplay called undercurrent got optioned many times, never got made, put it in a closet and forgot about it. And then in 1995, I got Orion pictures to pick it up. And, and, and I was excited because it was the same company that James Cameron made Terminator with. And I thought this is good because I worked for the same producer that Cameron worked for when he did Piranha 2. And so that was kind of my end. So I come in with Undercurrent. They loved it. They put the package together, got all the financing. We had attached uh, Jason Patrick, you might know from Speed 2. And Jen, um, Sarah Jessica Parker um, from Sex in the City. Those two were attached to it, ready to go. We had this, this, they sent me to Puerto Rico to do location scouting, money in the bank, everything ready to go, right up until they were ready to shoot the film. It was green, everything was go. And then the project fell through because the insurance company pulled out for reasons I never found out. And uh, there was a lawsuit, never got made. And that was, that was it for undercurrent, but it was a close call. I want to segue into another series and it was called Hysteria. You actually conceived that series. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of Hysteria? Yeah, well, that that's there's some controversy around that. Uh, I again, I, um, I knew Tom Ruger quite well, the producer of all the Animaniac shows. I'd also written Road Rovers, Pinky and the Brain, um, and and all these shows I'd I'd written for him, so he knew me well. And one time I had him over for dinner at our house, he and his wife, and. I told him that I had this idea for a show that you might think about. And it was a, um, it was kind of an update, kind of Tom Ruger kind of updating version of um, that old history show from what is it, 1950s and 60s, The Wayback Machine. I don't know if you remember that show. It was very fuzzy in my mind, but I grew up with this history uh, cartoon series. And um, the I pitched it to him and I gave him the the you know the updated ideas. Uh, I came up with the title hysteria, even with the exclamation mark. He said, write that up. So I wrote it up, got it to him. A few weeks later, he called me into uh, Warner Brothers 
And he said into the Warner Brothers office and he took me into this room and they had all the sketches on the, all the walls of all the characters from Hysteria. And they even kept the name. They're all, everything was there. And I said, Tom, this is great. There's my show. <laughs> and he didn't look too pleased. He was the executive producer. So he got the credit for the show and I got to write for him, which was never really, never made me too happy. But, you know, this is Hollywood. This is, you know, kind of how things sometimes work. <laughs> so that was disappointing. But this series was about world history. Yeah, I wrote an episode for it on the Russian Revolution. So yeah, it was, they actually hired a woman. And I, I always thought this was the strangest job in the world. They hired a woman full-time job to come in and do all the research to make sure everything was accurate on all the episodes because they're all history lessons. And I thought, well, that's okay. I don't know why the screenwriters couldn't do the, that their own research, which I did. Certainly read everything I could on the Russian Revolution, for example. But um, but that's okay. They have their reasons. <laughs> Makes sense to no one but themselves. <laughs> oh, so well. your television writing career ended in 1998. What were some of the thoughts you were having at that time, and how did you decide on a new direction? No, well, that that's a, a good question. And and if there are other people out there who work in in uh, the film business or screenwriters or filmmakers probably know what I'm talking about. It's a very frustrating business. There's a lot of um, excitement, incredible highs and incredible disappointments. And you have to have that kind of stamina, that kind of alligator skin to get through um, that business. And by 1988, I've, I've been doing it since 84, and this is 98. So I've been doing it a long time. And uh, I was getting pretty fed up with a lot of personalities, a lot of the falling through of projects and so on. I got a project, my agent came to me with a project called Augie and the Cockroaches. And I thought this could be good. So we, I, I pitched ideas, we worked on it for a while and they offered me the dream of a lifetime. They, they, the company was being produced by a French company that had offices in LA and wanted LA talent. And uh, they were gonna give me an office in Paris and make me the lead writer on the show with, and pay for my housing and my wife and my kids. And I thought, you know, if, if you're a writer, this is about, this is what you dream about, you know? And certainly I was thrilled. Plus it was a funny show and it would have been a great job. Even if it lasted one year, you know, it would have been a great year. Um, so I signed the contract, we had everything done. I remember what happened is my wife and I decided to celebrate. We went out to dinner went to see Titanic, James Cameron's movie. This is one of those 18 ironies that keep coming around. You know, there I am, you know, the guy who gets to do Titanic, you know, working for the same producer I did work for. Uh, we had different paths we went on. So anyhow, uh, I went to see the movie, really liked the movie. We were in high spirits. We came home 
And in those days, you had answering machines with little flashing lights to tell you there was a message on it. So I played it. And it was my agent saying, the job, the, the project is off. It's been canceled. And I remember, I just, I, this was one of those high moments. And then it, I went so far down when I heard that. And I turned to my wife and I just said, I'm done. Well, she said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I have a master's degree in English. I can, I, I've always wanted to see if I, I always thought I'd be a good teacher. And I tried it out. I got a job at a school in Pasadena and I taught there and it was, I loved it. I love literature. I love teaching English. I was good at it. Steady income, very fulfilling, very creative. So from 1980, I want to say eight to 2019, I was a teacher, high school teacher. Never went back to, to writing or directing. So it goes. So from 1998 to 2019, you yeah. were a teacher in high uh -huh. school. Yeah. So 20-year career as a teacher, and you were in 20 years in film and television as well. well. Almost 20 years in the film business, about 20 years, because I actually, I think I started... If you really want to start a starting point, it was even further back than 1984 when I got my first writing job. You know, writing always takes time to get going, to get an agent, get people to see your stuff. It, it is. So it goes back about 20 years of writing and directing and 20 years of teaching. And I don't regret either career. Started a new career when I retired, which is I always wanted to be a novelist. I've I've. Uh, I've published two novels since I retired. Um, in, in case anyone is interested, I don't know, but uh, the first one's called Desolation Lake. And uh, the second one I wrote uh, that came out in 2021 was is called Falling Stars Over Belgrade, which was inspired by my experience of directing Beyond the Door 3. So it's a, it's, Beyond, uh, so Falling Stars Over Belgrade is a fictionalized, imagined version, version of my experiences directing low-budget horror films and kind of a what-if story. What if this happened? What, 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 how could this have gone wrong kind of a story? Uh, and so I let my imagination go, but it was based on actual directing experience working in Belgrade, Yugoslavia. As they say, as they say in the entertainment industry, it's inspired by true events. Right. You know, and so in a sense, I guess my writing film business writing continued. It just segued into novel writing. And I think a lot of people in our audience would be interested in reading that story since it deals with uh, your experiences making low budget horror pictures. Right. I think they would. I mean, I changed all the names of all the, the real people. They're fictionalized. I, I, uh, I took a great deal of liberty with uh, a lot of, of the stuff that I went through. But if you really want to see what a director goes like, goes through directing a horror film like Beyond the Door 3, um, now I don't want to get a lawsuit on this, so I'm going to say it is a completely fictional <laughs> story. And it's all imagined kind of a what if this, this might have happened sort of thing. But the actual directing 
details in there are accurate. So it's an extrapolation of some of the experiences you had. Right. And, and, and taking people that I actually do and then really playing with that a little bit, like <laughs> completely turning them into the characters I wish they'd been, <laughs> but weren't. Uh, it's novel writing is the best writing should be based on reality or inspired by at least I believe and I can't just make something up out of thin air so this was this came out of actual filmmaking experience personalities I mean you know, you know kind of actors you work with uh, in the low budget realm um, that kind of experience working with no money it's all you know it's all there <laughs> so I want to ask you, have you encountered any of your films or TV episodes on video streaming services? Well, yes, um, you can get a lot of them on YouTube. Um, uh, my, my, most of my films, I think, are all on YouTube, although I'd rather people actually get the uh, Blu-ray versions and, because the, the stuff you see on, on YouTube is terrible just terrible quality, really frustrating because the work we put into those movies, you know, the cinematography and, and the editing and the sound, all that, you know, that's done with, with earnest integrity. It's done with all heart, mind, and soul. And then you see it on a television, a YouTube screen. It's like, boy, they, uh, but so I don't, I, I prefer people try to see if they can find a copy of, uh, certainly Beyond the Door 3 is on uh, Blu-ray. Uh, Iced, on the other hand, you can get on a DVD. I don't think that's going to be on Blu-ray for some time. Um, I think Iced was only available on VHS. Yeah, okay. It would be nice to get a Blu-ray edition, but those film elements need to be found first. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the other movie I know, this is really funny, but the other movie I, I directed, uh, Lightning in a Bottle, which was came out in 1993, I found a DVD version, a French version of it that I bought. You can get it. It, it, is, it is a harder movie to find for some reason I don't know, but I, I love the fact that I have the French version dubbed. <laughs> Well, I do want to tell our audience that Animaniacs and Cow and Chicken episodes are available to buy on YouTube. So you can get the legitimate versions. They're for sale on YouTube if any of our listeners are interested in watching those. And I know that we're running low on time, so I think this will be a good place to wrap this up. I want to say thank you very much to Jeff Quitney for joining us once again. Well, thank you, Stephen. It was a great joy to be with you. And for all our listeners out there, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And talk to you soon.